Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Welcome to yet another episode of Lions Love by Donkeys podcast. This is certainly not the third time I'm trying to introduce this episode. Please don't, please don't ask us what happened the previous two times, because the answer is nothing. As you can tell, I am Joe, and with me is Liam. Suffering with me as my computer dies from the inside out. Hey, buddy. This just goes to show you what happens when you attempt to... Uh, Insult the great empire of Japan. Yes, I yeah. agree. <laughs> they have they have hacked my fucking soundboard and made it sound like shit. I have COVID again. I'm assuming I also have that due to wronging the imperial family. I'm on that Bolsonaro shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Plus that Bolsi wide open, if you will. Oh, God. <laughs> None of the fascism, all of the internal disease. That that's that's me. That's the difference between me and Bolsonaro. Say what you will about me, but I did not help install a Brazilian military government. I do, however, uh have various untreated illnesses and stab wounds just like he does. Yeah. That's, uh, that's that's terrific. Yeah. Our our fearless leader, Joe Kasabian, leading us once again into the misery abyss. That's right, baby. Speaking of misery, we're on Nanking Part 3. This time it's organized state violence. Yeah. Uh, so when we... Le- I, sh- I shouldn't sound so fake happy <laughs> when I say that. Yeah, I'm always a little worried when I talk about how much I've taken psychic damage recording an episode of Lions. And you never look close that picture of Jim from The Office just looking through <laughs> the... And I'm just like, yep, it's great. I, I love to take years and years off my life. You get used to it after a while. I think I point out in the first or second episode of the series that like uh, very rarely does anything I read actually bother me anymore. Right. Uh, there's there's underlying issues there, but this one that was not the case. Like this this one sucked. Um, and you know when we left you at, at the end of part two, the uh, the uncontrolled violence of the the rape of Nanking was over. Um, there's different phases of, of occupational violence. There's the initial contact, uh, which obviously in this case is far outside anything else outside of like Genghis Khan sacking a town. And then it slowly shifts into the official violence, which is occupation. Gone are soldiers becoming like bloodthirsty marauders in the street and in their place is administrative violence. And I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other. They're both horrible and unspeakable. It's just different phases. Just qualifying genocide, everybody. That's uh, what he's doing. God damn it. I guess this means I can write for Counterpunch now. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the sound of my agent firing me. Um, I didn't mean it. I, I didn't mean it. Now, by the time the Japanese went to occupy this city, there was hardly a city left to occupy. In the eight weeks of uncontrolled chaos, they had done nearly $1 billion in damage to the city. Soldiers had set fire to most of the cityscape while looting and and murdering everything. Uh, Nothing was safe. They burned homes, churches, embassies, department stores, shops, mansions, like hospitals. There's nothing untouched by them within the eight weeks. Not even the safety zone was spared from the arson spree. The soldiers even robbed the bank blowing it open with hand grenades and then making off. I don't think cash is useless. (laughs) That just seems like a waste of explosives. And like, uh, if if they stole Uh, gold, genocidal bloodlust, you know, doesn't need logic. Yeah. I try not to rationalize with psychopaths, I guess. (laughs) Like, it's like trying to rationalize with someone who's like, no, Liam, you're simply not on the same level of humanity as I am. Like, well, I'm not going to debate you out of this because you clearly didn't rationalize your way into this way of thinking. Speaking of which, that we should just clip that 
and uh, have it ready to go for what's going to be the new intro. Yeah, when the Nan King deniers <laughs> rock up to annoy us. Yeah, that's why I have this meme of it's like a rocket launching into space that just says "suck my dick" on it. I'm going to get a lot of use of it. Yeah, I mean the soldiers weren't exactly thinking and on a high level of functioning here. I mean, they're mostly teenagers, early twenties. So they're like, Hey, look, a bank, let's steal the money. <laughs> not, not to mention that, that like the, the local currency is going to be made useless. We'll get there. It would make sense if it was like precious metals, gold, you know, things that they use to back their currency, but it's noted that they stole Chinese cash, which they could not use. Which is useless. Okay. Yeah. You know, you're doing a genocide. You're not, you're not uh, thinking logically anymore. Yeah, and the rape of Nanking was not limited to the city of Nanking. It was a very large region, but the entire surrounding area was victimized as well. Japanese soldiers descended upon villages like swarms of locusts, stealing anything that they wanted and burning down anything they didn't take. The region was stripped clean of farm animals, crops, and women. They took everything. Whatever they didn't take was killed. Like, if you were a man on one of these farms, you were dead. You are just getting Uh, murdered, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if they didn't use you for labor, which uh, the end point of that is also dying. By January of 1938, not a single shop in the entire town was open. The harbor was empty. There was no food. There was no electricity and no drinkable water. People were reduced to looting the houses not already picked clean by the Japanese in order to survive. As they were pretty sure the occupants of those houses were dead or they had fled. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, they weren't going to need those things. Um, This loot-based black market, both building material and food, was the first spark of a local economy after the bloodbath was over. The Japanese propped up a local puppet government, which was called the Nanking Self-Government Committee, uh, by the spring. Can I assume they didn't do much in the way of self-government? Well, self-government, no. Uh, (laughs) I mean, they they certainly didn't work for themselves. Um, The city was... Kind of functioning like it was by spring, uh, like prior to the occupation, before the the violence began. It even became a shipping hub for the Japanese military effort and the Japanese economy in the home islands. However, the Chinese were heavily discriminated against, go figure. They were taxed more than anybody else, and the local currency, the one that the soldiers had just looted, was replaced with worthless Japanese military script. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah, not even like the yen. Yeah, because remember, like Japan, in their mindset for World War II, they're going to take these areas over. This is not a temporary occupation. Like you would think that would mean they introduce their own currency, like because you're going to be part of like greater imperial Japan or greater co-prosperity sphere. Yes, right. But they didn't. They they forced them to use literally useless script. That way, the Chinese couldn't hoard any kind of wealth to try to move. It effectively made them serfs. Well. I don't know. Imperial Japan's real good at being dicks about it. Yeah, they're not great. Japanese businessmen treated their Chinese workers like slaves, sometimes killing them for the slightest infraction. One woman was beheaded behind the factory she worked at for simply being accused of stealing. And another man was stoned to death for the same reason. Jesus. Like an accusation was all it took. And that accusation was literally just like a Japanese person says that you stole something. You're guilty. Now, the Japanese also took a a little card out of the British's deck and allowed the opium trade to flourish. Yeah. Now, opium has been a thing in China for quite a long time, but it's been minimized and like shunned away into dark back rooms, stopped enforcing any kind of regulation. They could skim the profits off the top of the opium trade, as well as get their laborers addicted to it, and then simply pay them with it rather than anything that had any actual material worth. They also plied young men, you know, boys and girls with opium before getting them hooked and then kidnapping them. And you can you know where those girls went. Yep. This, as you can imagine, caused an eventual spike in crime. Now, I'm not saying drugs and crime are linked. However, deprivation and people doing what they need to do in order to survive certainly is. Now, this spike in crime was used by the Japanese as an excuse for their continued heavy-handed occupation of Nanking. Like, wow, look at all of this opium as they like throw pa- like there's like packets of opium. I guess I don't I don't I don't I'm not aware of the measurements of opium distribution. A dime bag equivalent? I don't fucking know. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, they'd sell it for literally almost nothing. Yeah. So anybody could afford it? 
That's that's how you want opium to be. Yes. Yeah. When I was buying heroin, I was buying it in bags. Now, it, it's not cheap though, right? Uh, it used to be cheaper. Now it's always with fentanyl, man. I I have not been in the game for a long time. The the game. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I never fucked in anything quite that hard. That's why I compared it to like weed. That's what I'm here for, Joe. <laughs> but they made it so far below market value that any like peasant could afford it. I mean, they were doing it on purpose and then using oh, yeah, absolutely. the opium uh, as a reason to stay. Because like, wow, look at all this freely flowing opium. We have to help you control this as they're like spreading it along from their cargo pockets or whatever. You need help, I say, as I beat you to death with the butt of my rifle. I'm trying to help lower crime as you shoot another person in the back. Oh, uh, shit. That one's a little bit too close to home. Imperial Japan Crime Stoppers. Hooray. Oh, God. You call him, you call him a gruff, and it's just a rabid dog that eats you. <laughs> the Imperial Japanese Officers Benevolent Association at the local city hall. Now, in 1939, the Japanese established Unit 1644, which... I don't like, it. I don't like what Imperial Japan establishes units, I'll tell you that. Especially when they're followed by a number. Yeah, uh, this is an umbrella unit of 731, that unit. That one, yeah. yeah. Go back, listen to our episode on that one. Uh, or don't, you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, now, Unit 1644 vanished people off the street and used them to conduct horrific medical experimentations on them in a converted hospital in the outskirts of town. Now, I think I pointed this out before, and none of these experiments had any actual medical purpose. So it's a lot like Auschwitz and other experimental groups like this. The cruelty is the point, not the medical research. Right, of course. The US took in Shiro Ishii of Unit 731 after World War II. We did not need his medical expertise to know that if you inject someone with bleach, they would die. Like, Because that's the kind of shit that they're doing. I, I hate to make a... Trump joke, but uh, apparently we didn't learn that lesson. Uh, to be fair, I think he wanted you to drink it more than inject it. It's hard to remember. I don't know. Yeah. To be fair, I think Shiro Ishii would probably support this uh, <laughs> hypothesis. And like, there's other things like what happens when you use mustard gas on people. We've known that since World War One. We didn't. Right. We didn't need to like do further human research on. Not to mention there were no test groups. There was like no like meticulous <laughs> record keeping. There's these aren't scientific experiments. They're just murder with extra steps. I bring that up because oftentimes you hear people not necessarily excuse the crimes. I, I rarely hear that. I mean, from insane people, you hear that, but. Normally, you hear equivocations like, well, you know, nobody had ever done that kind of experimentation before. We wanted their records. We didn't want to do the experiments ourselves. When it's like, no, man, I think we had a good idea that if you put someone in a block of ice, they'd fucking die. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. You fucking freak shows. Uh, anyway, this place is a, something of an of a assembly line of, of, of death. They'd bring people in. They'd inject people with poison, germs, and lethal gases, which this might shock you, Liam. We already knew that they would kill people. Right. As we know. We didn't need more of this. And the Imperial Japan also knew this because they're one of the few powers in, of World War II, or I guess the Sino-Japanese War, the theater, to actively militarily use chemical and biological weapons. They knew what they were doing. Right. Uh, but yeah, they did that anyway. They, w- they killed about 10 people per week in this facility and then they'd throw their bodies in an incinerator. So right. the number is kind of unknown because their, their remains were completely destroyed. Right. Uh, so we only know what they're willing to tell us now, as if this fear of horrible death and torture wasn't bad enough, the occupation also created a new social structure that was kind of a revamp of a traditional, I believe it was a King dynasty social structure, sure. which was every 10 households were ordered to appoint a head man. And every 10 of those head men were ordered to appoint another head, and so on and so forth. It was a pyramid scheme type of network of governance. Under the system, every person was required to carry a registration card signed by his head of 10, head of 100, and head of 1,000 men, attesting to their loyalty to the local government. This was something of an internal passport. And if any unregistered person showed up, you were bound by law to immediately report this person to the Japanese authorities. Being reported is pretty much a death sentence because Nanking was meant to be a, a labor pit for the right. Japanese. They didn't sure. care about city administration, whatever. They uh-huh. wanted you to work in their factories, work in their harbors, you die, whatever. 
Like, and sure. every city was going to be like this. They weren't going to let people internally migrate. So if you were from outside the city and you didn't have your internal passport, you were fucking doomed. Now, right. of course, the Japanese didn't trust the Chinese. Remember, they believed them to be a subhuman race to the Japanese. Right. So they often tested the system by releasing unregistered men into the city and waiting to see if they could find a place to stay or work. And if they did, the heads of that area would probably be executed. Oftentimes, they're brutally punished. And if they were killed, so were their families. So they they created a massive atmosphere of complete, impenetrable paranoia as well. Right. Now, as Japanese soldiers were pulled further and further away of the growing war, life in the city kind of returned to a new normal. I'm not going to say normal, but a new normal. Um, As normal as things would be under the Japanese occupation. Because the main problem, I mean, administrative violence is horrible, but the main problem was it was tens of thousands of soldiers being there and just committing violence against civilians, knowing that they would not be punished. Right. As the war expanded and they began to lose, those men got pulled further and further away, allowing something that resembled normalcy to return to Nanking. People came back to the city to look for work. They took their families with them. And by 1942, 700,000 people had moved into the city. Old choice. Yeah. If you remember all the way back to episode one, that is a full 300,000 less than what had been there before. Now, when I'm not talking about casualty numbers yet, we'll get there because it's kind of complicated. Now, Nanking's hell finally came to an end on August 14th, 1945, after the Japanese finally surrendered after being punched in the dick with a double dose of nuclear hellfire. Soldiers remained in the city, however, because you know when you have armies spread across what you want to be your empire, it tends to kind of be hard to reel them back in. So the Japanese soldiers, knowing the war was over, were just kind of sitting in parts of China going, what the fuck are we supposed to do now? Right, right. Now, Chinese civilians rightfully were worried, like, what the fuck are these guys going to do? You know, they know they've lost. They're surrounded by people they see as less than them. They've already killed so many of you. Like, what, what are they going to do now? Uh, is the answer more genocide? Actually, no. Wow. It's, surprisingly, it seems like all of the soldiers just got drunk in the streets and cried. Uh, I didn't see any reports that were written down of any outlying violence committed by them on their way out of Nanking. But finally, and maybe mercifully, this is where the part of the story we get to talk about at least some people that were responsible for this getting what was coming to them. But in order to do that, we have to talk about war crime trials. Yeah, everybody's favorite thing. Every, everybody's thing that they think is uh, an actual thing that still occurs. Uh, <laughs> now, even before the end of World War II, the Allied powers had been organizing what would eventually turn into war crime tribunals to bring the losers to justice because that's how history works. Yep. But also because the Japanese military were fucking monsters, and sometimes these, you know, victors writing history crosses over with they deserved it. Um, so it's sure. kind of, so right. yeah, I'll buy that. <laughs> yeah. It's not often, it's not often. And yeah. not to mention, not everybody that was responsible for the horrific crimes of world war two got brought to justice. Unfortunately, no operation paperclip is a happy thing that happened. Yeah. And the USSR had a system uh, as well that snuck away tens of thousands of SS and Gestapo people who, you know, like, you know, we had Werner von Braun sliding into NASA and they staff like the Stasi and shit with these guys. So, you know, it's the, the handshaking meme of just everybody is fucking awful. Everybody is fucking awful, Joe. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we had our own version of Operation Paperclip from the Japanese. We brought Shiro Ishii from Unit 731 to work in Virginia, I believe it was. Cool, 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 cool. Maybe it was Fort Meade. I think that's Maryland. I don't know. It was wherever Maryland. we work on biological chemical warfare. Fort Meade is Maryland. Uh, yeah. you, you pass a secret government installation, do not look sign on the Oh, really? Yeah. It actually says that. This, this secret government installation sign is, is making the secret government installation very noticeable. <laughs> I mean, in all seriousness, there is like an NSA exit off the Beltway. Is that Meade too? Of Washington Parkway. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's got like the supervillain looking building, right? Yeah. The, the mirrored cube. Yeah. Thinking about the cube. It's it's funny because like my one of my first places I went for the military is Fort Knox. And you everybody thinks Fort Knox is like the gold place. 
And there is a building on Fort Knox. It's completely separate from the rest of it called, you know, the depository where all right. of those things are. And it's like very noticeable. Museum. Yeah, there's a tank museum. That's in like main cantonment of Fort Knox, uh, which is very cool. Like that museum fucking rocks. I hope it's still there. They may have moved it to Stewart. Anyway, you can see the depository building from like a fucking mile away. Yeah, it's a little like a Christmas tree. Yeah, and it's just like surrounded by a fence. I think like someone said if you like pull over to the side of the road, like because de- it's ran by the Department of Treasury, they have like their Department of Treasury cops that patrol it, and they're all like 80 years old. But they'll like come over and like tell you to fuck off, but that's about it. <laughs> Make me, I pay for this. <laughs> now, the US and the Chinese nationalist government, which still existed at the time, had made arrangements for the trials for Japanese war criminals in March of 1944. And that's when the UN created the Investigation of War Crimes Committee, a further subcommittee that was formed for Pacific war crimes in Chongqing, China. Now, after the surrender of Japan, the planning ramped up because they realized, wow, we're going to have a whole lot of people to hang in a short amount of time. A whole lot of dudes. <laughs> we're going to need more rope. You ever see that video of like six Philly flyers in the penalty box all at once? Yeah. <laughs> it's like that. Blowing a whistle. Uh, I'm trying to remember who is the very famous Philly guy that was missing teeth back when you guys won cups. Okay, that was the 70s. Yeah, yeah. So it's like they were the Broad Street Bullies. Yeah. It's like Murray or Murph. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking I'm getting him and the, the Canadian uh, or the the um, Calgary Flames guy with the big mustache confused. But anyway, just imagine like a UN referee blowing the whistle like five minutes. Genocide. <laughs> I mean, effectively, that's all the UN does now. Because right. like, they're like, oh, you said you don't want to go to the penalty box. We're going to fine you. <laughs> okay okay now fuck that actually this means the, the nhl has more authority over its players <laughs> yeah Ugh. now like i said after the surrender of japan the planning ramped up for these tribunals and especially the one in Chongqing. and there'd be several different war crimes trials including the tokyo and nanking trials which would bring these men to justice asterisks next to that one unfortunately For Japan, the war criminals were broken down into categories A, B, and C. Uh, Sure. Now, this depends on the rank and the crimes they were being accused of. Now, I couldn't actually find uh, an exhaustive definition. It turns out they were actually quite broad, um, which means that these categories were quite fluid, uh, depending on how much the allied governments hated one particular guy. Sure. Yeah, no, that I was going to say, if I'm trying a dude for war crimes, you're going in the war crimes bucket. Well, the easiest way to determine them is class A were charges against Japan's top civilian leadership and charges B and C were military leadership. Not the emperor. Thanks. Uh, was it MacArthur that? Oh, yeah, we're getting there, baby. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Not just the emperor either. Now, unlike the Nuremberg trials, the charge of crimes against peace was a prerequisite in order for prosecution. Only those individuals whose crimes included crimes against peace could be prosecuted by the tribunal. Don't ask me why. Dumb legalese reasons. In this event, no Class C charges were heard in Tokyo. However, Class C charges were heard at Nanking. So, because the Tokyo trials are the most serious of the Japanese war crimes trials, that's including people like Tojo and shit. Sure. Uh, so, the most serious guys went to Tokyo. The fucking Japanese D team squad or D league yeah, squad like, went to like Nanking. Triple A war crimes. Yeah, yeah. You didn't bayonet a child on a spear. See, calling them AAA war crimes is unfair to AAA luchador wrestling. Nobody watches like D-League basketball. Uh, I disagree with you, but that's fine. Okay, if you're a D-League basketball aficionado, you're fucking weird. Okay, Okay. we're on this (laughs) pod together, asshole. You can't fire me. Please don't fire me. That's like being a really big fan of your local minor league baseball team. Okay, first of all, do not insult the Iron Pigs that way. (laughs) Of course they're called the Iron Pigs. Uh, and the Arfils, and God rest the Camden River Sharks, taken before their time. River Sharks. Yeah, Camden's a weird place, man. Was that like a historical base name, or is that like all of every three college sports teams called Bearcats? No, it was the fact that if you if you go into the Delaware, you'll be eaten by sharks. Is there sharks in the Delaware River? There probably are, Joe. Okay, I'll have to take your fucking word for it. I don't fucking know. <laughs> okay, so... 
For the trials of B and C war criminals, they began the city of Nanking in August of 1946, nearly a decade after the rape of Nanking had begun. Just like, because sometimes people think of like World War II as like 1939 to 1945. So right. I can't stress enough how much earlier World War II began if you were Chinese. Right. The trials lasted until February of 1947, and more than a thousand people testified about 460 different cases of murder, rape, arson, and looting. Now, this is non exhaustive list. At one point, the prosecution simply had to accept that there was no way they're going to be able to charge everybody with everything. Yes, they could have, you fucking babies. No, it's it's more like for one, you can't parse all the details. There is not a lot of surviving witnesses to a lot of stuff. Don't need to. I'm taking the extreme track on this. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't disagree with you. Okay, thank you. (laughs) I I didn't. If you're going to look at the war crimes trials of World War II from a legal perspective, none of these trials like pass snuff. Like they're all fucked up, and we'll talk more about that later. But it's a lot like um, like serial killers who have like sixty something odd victims. Like cops, like look, we got him on ten. That's fucking good enough. He's not. He's he's gonna be executed. I I mean, obviously prison abolition, and we're gonna have to rethink the justice system in many ways. But one of my favorite things is when they absolutely nail someone's dick to the floor with like thirteen life, like just in case. It's like thirteen life counts plus eight years. Just in case. <laughs> it's like the Larry Nasser case out of my alma mater, Michigan State. I think the Michigan federal court ended up finding him guilty of X amount of cases and sentencing him to like 1,500 years in prison or something. Just in case. Just yeah, in like, case. We never know. <laughs> he, he might be the fucking Highlander. Prison abolition, but that guy goes last. Yeah. Now, some of the evidence that was used had been collected by, you guessed it. The Japanese themselves, uh, which is very common for genocide and war crimes trials. Most paper trails, people, assholes. Yeah, most people doing this shit don't think they're going to lose. Hold this L. They had like collections of photo albums, Ugh. newspaper clippings. We talked about that too. Now, like the, the, the most important photo album came from a Japanese general, which had 16 pictures where they documented their own crimes with notes. Um, you know, great record keeping fella. It's like uh, the Abu Ghraib shit. It's just like, you stupid assholes. Right. It's an affront to your senses as a human being, but it's an affront to your senses as like, why are you so dumb? It's like most of the Holocaust evidence outside of physical evidence, like the orders and, and pictures and things like that were almost all taken by Nazis. Right. We didn't like stumble upon these things. They're like, oh, look, here's an order ordering exactly this. Okay. Now, the newspaper clippings were an interesting part. They were used since they were censored very, very little. This also happened during the trials of those two officers that took part in the killing contest that we spoke about. They both denied that the contest ever took place. Fuck you. With one man claiming he had lied to a journalist because he knew if the Japanese public knew him as a guy that beheaded 100 Chinese people, it would be a lot easier to get a good wife when he got home. I swear to God, that's his excuse. Tell me this guy gets his dick nailed to the floor. Uh, More like a short drop followed by a lot of strangulation. Oh, okay. I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. take it. Yeah. Well, actually, correction. They were shot. <laughs> oh. oh, that's... They used firing squad uh, in the Chinese trials while the U.S. Whenever the U.S. ran trials, they tend to like to use hanging. Now, to put this in the easiest terms that don't make a lot of sense. Remember, these are military tribunals. And the U.S. did and still actually does consider execution by firing squad to be an honorable way to execute someone. To allow a military officer to go out by gunfire is considered much more honorable than hanging them, which is why the U.S. uses hanging across the board during World War II. Um, I, I love that even our execution methods are out of spite. Yes, they, they are. And not to mention... Universally, the U.S. is very bad at hanging people during World War II. Wasn't there the guy who like fucked it up on purpose just to make just to like squeeze out a little extra suffering? Now it depends on who you believe on that. He was the executioner in Europe after the Nuremberg trials. He claims he fucked it up on purpose. Most other people's accounts were he was a drunk and he's really bad at his job. Oh, it doesn't so, matter, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, it means to an end. It depends on who you believe. Uh, he was a, a pretty. 
pretty savage alcoholic, as one would be as a guy who hangs people for a living. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and not to mention, like, he lied to the military, saying he was an executioner in his job as a prison guard back in the United States, which he was not. He didn't even know how to tie a noose correctly. Once again, hold this L, Nazi Germany. Yeah, yeah, like... If 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 he went back to the United States and was executing people that way, I would have a very big problem with it. Here, I'm gonna let this one slide. Yeah. <laughs> Pick womp your womp. battles, homie. <laughs> yeah, like I'm against capital punishment. However, I'm gonna keep quiet on this one. Yeah, I just it's like when they execute like somebody who like assaulted children or something. You're just like, all right, like I don't want uh, like yeah, the state shouldn't be in the business of murdering people, but goddamn, I don't want to have to like defend this guy. Right. It's like, abolish the death penalty. Next on the docket is Timothy McVeigh. I'm going to stay quiet for like five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Abolish the death penalty. Can you guys still hear me? (laughs) This guy actually believed that by murdering people, he would be considered. And honestly, he's probably not wrong. He was famous. It probably would have gotten a a really hot wife that was attracted to his mass beheadings, um, which is a... A sentence I never thought I'd have to say. Uh, but yeah, both of them were actually my firing squad. Yeah. I fucking hate it. Now, the next attraction at the trial was general, or former general at this point, I guess, Tani Hisao. Uh, he was the commander of the 6th Division, which was the division responsible for the majority of this insanity. 80 people testified against him. In his indictment was a length of a book turning hundreds of pages covering stabbings, burnings, drownings, strangulations, rapes, theft, and general destruction. This is just one guy. I believe it was 400 pages long. Jesus. At one point, Chinese officials displayed heaps of skulls dragged up from mass graves that were created by Chinese troops. Tens of thousands of people wanted to attend and testify against him, but there simply wasn't enough seats leading for court officials to broadcast the entire proceedings on loudspeakers outside for people to listen, where they had camped out to make sure this this all happened. On March 7th, 1947, Tani Hisao was found guilty, and most of the city turned up to watch him be executed on April 26th. Lines of spectators flanked the road and sidewalk as armed guards drove him through the city to be executed by firing squad. Somehow he was not fucking torn apart by the civilians. More discipline, I guess. Mm. Like more discipline than I would be. I don't. I don't know what I like. I. I never want to say what I would do in any situation. If I'm a Chinese civilian, the things I've seen that is that is some restraint. You're a better populist than I would have been. Yeah. Not to compare the two, I hate making comparisons that I don't think are apt. But when certain concentration death camps were uh, liberated, the U.S. are just like, you guys can handle your business if you want, and they like allowed Jews to murder their guards. There's something animalistic inside of people that truly right. want that vengeance, right. especially when you've seen like the literally the worst shit that's ever existed. And once again, I say to Nazi Germany, hold this L. Yeah, I don't care. I'm not going to. You executed a whole bunch of my people. But, you know, we got one on you. That's fine. It's like when the few like extermination orders, if you want to call like war crime orders that the U.S. published during World War II was to like execute SSPOWs. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to give him a pass on this one, guys. Yeah. <laughs> My morals aren't always as consistent as they should be. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. No, nobody's black and white, baby. Uh, now, for the worst offenders like Nakijima and Hanagawa, they did not face justice, unfortunately. Though they did get to meet their god if they believe in that sort of thing. They've been dead since 1945. Nakajima via illness and Hanagawa via heart attack. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Hanagawa was actually quite useful because before he died, he helped write an entire book about the events of Nanking. Unfortunately, that entire book denies that the crimes ever took place. Yeah. So right. people often point to Hanagawa's book as a primary resource as to why Nanking is a conspiracy theory. So. Rest in piss. Yeah, well, he's dead and we're not, so suck it. Yeah, I'm not sure what Shinto hell looks like, but I hope he's in it. Now, more people would be charged at the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, which is otherwise known as the Tokyo War Crimes Trials, including all of your heavy hitters from Class A. These trials began on May 3rd, 1946, and the scope of the trial dwarfed that of the Nanking Trials. 
It drew over 200,000 spectators and 419 witnesses. The transcripts of the trial would reach 50,000 pages, which is only like 100 pages shorter than Infinite Jest. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever read that fucking book? It's awful. I hate uh, that fucking guy. I have not, but I have stumbled my way through War and Peace. Nah, f- at least that's good. I'm going to get a lot of... More people are going to be mad about me hating on Infinite Jest now. <laughs> it's the Fight Club of books. Isn't Fight Club the Fight Club of books? No, Fight Club's the Fight Club of movies for guys, because the, the dudes that yeah, enjoy no, Fight Club it. the movie aren't going to go read the book. It's a fucking joke. I know. Shut up. Shut you the shut fuck up. up. You shut up. This is why I hate you. You don't hate me. <laughs> How could you? With my bright smiling face and my pretty eyes. That's right. It just brightens my day. There's few things that bring joy to my life. The, the laughter of children and the giggling of Liam's. Oh, thanks, Joe. <laughs> uh, let's get through this bitch. <laughs> now, this entire trial took two and a half years, which is three times longer than Nuremberg went on. And will probably remain the longest war crime trial in history since we really don't, we don't do them anymore. Do yeah. those anymore. Now, um, of course, people will point to the ICC, ICJ prosecutions over the Bosnian genocide. However, those are it's a different mechanism. Those are actually more grounded in legal realities than these were. Uh, they're kind of not comparable. This is a, how do I say, victory lap in some ways. Oh, God, yeah. There's a lot been written on this. There's a few books about Nuremberg and the Tokyo War Crimes trial that point out just how like not legally sound the entire process nope. was. Nope. Like the, this U.S. Supreme Court kind of called Nuremberg uh, a kangaroo court, things like that. Not that the Supreme Court is good, but, you know, they, uh, you would expect them to understand the, the most annoying amount of legalese possible. Uh, right. But yeah. Again, I'm not complaining. Um, now, 28 men from the Japanese military and government stood trial as Class A. And according to historian Arnold Brackman, quote, at the trials, a thousand different Mylai massacres emerged. Thousands of horrific details not previously known were broadcast to the world for the first time. Not just the details of Nanking, but of death marches, slavery, and routine and savage torture of POWs, medical experiments, and the full scope of Japanese institutional sexual slavery became known to the world. Not that that doesn't stop people from denying it. However, sure. yeah. like this is kind of like we learned the depth of Nazi depravity from their trials. Um, and the same is true of the Tokyo trials. And we made sure to broadcast this to civilians to show what their government did. We also did that in Germany uh, because there was actually a fair amount of people who simply didn't believe that this was possible. Believed it was a uh, actually more so on the Japanese side that believed that this is all a uh, a Western uh, like con job propaganda invention yeah yeah now the japanese defense lawyers attempted to trot out the just following orders excuse which you know went over so well in nuremberg but uh they were quickly overwhelmed by the huge amount of evidence the trials stated that the japanese army was quote let loose like a barbarian horde and desecrated the city of nanking uh, now you can some racial messaging there mm-hmm. uh that i'm not gonna totally go into but i'm sure you picked up on it and that's super common, especially reading shit from 1947. Right, if you, I mean, if you look at American World War II propaganda, holy shit. It's rough. It is. It's racist. Yeah. Uh, um, thanks, Dr. Seuss. Uh, that's what happens when you go to Dartmouth. <laughs> now, uh, it was concluded this information wasn't just eyewitness accounts. This is concluded from cables and telegrams uh, that the government back in Japan was fully and acutely aware of what the military was doing within Nanking, like we talked about last episode. Now, the full weight of the blame of the Tokyo trials for what happened in Nanking fell directly on the shoulders of Iwane Metsui. Uh, now, if you remember, he's the guy that's half dead from various different illnesses and wasn't actually there. Right. We get a birdies guy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if that is exactly fair or not, that's really up for debate. And my opinion on this is complicated. Now, don't yell at me yet. Matsui was an old man ruled with disease and wasn't even the city when it fell. By the time that he had the power to end the savagery, which he did at one point, but I had yet to start yet, he was no longer in command anymore. That fell to Prince Asaka. That being said, I do not mean to say that Matsui is fucking innocent. He is guilty of a lot of things. 
However, to say that he is the main player of the Rape of Nanking is incredibly, incredibly historical. Uh, he was a fall right. guy. Right. Okay. He spent the pretrial years after his retirement putting on a show of public flagellation. Uh, he built a shrine of forgiveness in his hometown, specifically about Nanking. And he hired a priestess to pray and call out in front of it for the victims of his men. Now, if you want to chalk this all up to uh, a show, I don't disagree with you. I, I, I do think that Matsui felt bad about what happened, but I also think a lot of this is performative. He knew sure. that he was facing a noose. And you're going to do whatever you can to avoid swinging. So I, I get that too. Yeah. I mean, he was guilty. He's not the most guilty. This is right. like uh, Hitler getting away with the Holocaust, but instead you hang, I don't know, Erwin Rommel. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, hang both of them, to be clear, but differing layers of guilt. I'm just saying that it's Princess Sokka who should have swung, but we'll get to that point. During the trial, Matsui was weird. He didn't give a full account of what happened. He left out any detail that might implicate the Imperial family. Uh, He went from making excuses to denying them completely, while then occasionally launching into random babbling bullshit about religion and the nature of Sino-Japanese friendship. To the point that his lawyers had to tell him to cut it out. There's some people that believe he might have been suffering some like early stages of dementia, which I wouldn't doubt. He's quite old and he's not exactly healthy. Right. But as far as not pawning blame off on the Imperial family, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. There's a reason why he didn't do that. The crux of his defense boiled down that he ordered his soldiers not to murder and they did it anyway. It isn't right. his fault they didn't listen. That's his argument, of course. He also made sure to blame himself and other subordinate commanders rather than to point out that he was not in command. That was Prince Asaka. He, sure. he, he just ate it. Right. Along with Matsui, Koki Hirota was charged. He was the foreign minister during the taking of Nanking. He was implicated because the U.S. had long since cracked the Japanese encryption code known as RED. Um, I think it's an acronym for something. As the foreign minister, he had been sending messages back and forth to the Japanese embassy in Washington, D.C., which, remember, we had tapped at that point because we were pretty sure Japan was going to cook some shit up. Right. Uh, we were not exactly friends at the time. The war had not quite started yet. <laughs> Obviously, as there's a Japanese ambassador in Washington, D.C. still. Uh, now, these messages clearly laid out what was happening in Nanking, which the U.S. then intercepted. Well... I'm not saying the foreign minister had any power to stop them, because remember, the military is firmly in charge here. He was a government cabinet minister, however, and he could have done something. Even even like some kind of telegram to the government saying, what the fuck are you doing? Please stop this. Probably would have absolved him, but he did nothing. Instead, he kind of was like, good good job, guys. You're doing great. If you're trying to say you're innocent in terms of genocide, that's probably not what you want to lead with. His excuse more boiled down to, I'm the foreign minister. I don't control the military. What did you want me to do? Like, I had no control over that. Like, you're the fucking foreign minister. You could have done something. You're pretty high up cabinet minister. Send a telegram, asshole. Yeah. And even even if, I'll say hypothetically, in a situation that you may or may not connect to a different situation, you are a government minister and you're part of a government where the government ministers truly do have no power. It's a full centralized dictatorship on... I don't know, this other guy, uh, say like how people believe that the emperor was used. It's like his word is as good as the word of God, which ideologically that's true and practical wasn't. But let's say that is the case. And the emperor is having this happen. You're still the foreign minister. Bitch, you're still guilty. Fuck you. You're still right. in the government. <laughs> right. That's my argument. Is it, is it legally based? Absolutely not. Do we care? No, we don't. No, I do not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Matsui and Hirota were both sentenced to death, as were five other Class A war criminals and various others for their crimes. Now, when he was sentenced, Matsui said, quote, I'm happy to end this way. I'm really eager to die at any time, which, sure. All right, right, Hardo. I mean, yeah, there's the military culture built in there, but also he he knew he wasn't long for this world, even if they didn't execute them. (laughs) Sure. Now, you're probably wondering why Prince Asaka did not stand trial. This is the one that most people probably kind of already know about. Despite a mountain of evidence that should have led to him getting shot or hung. It's hanged for people, Joe. Huh? 
It's hanged for people. Whatever. People are hanged. You throw them out of a car for all I care. Okay. All right. I'm not <laughs> saying no to that. I'm just, you know. Now, that all comes down to noted psychopath and dumbass General Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur had been given the responsibility of governing occupied Japan, and he thought his job would make a whole lot goddamn easier if he still had the emperor and the imperial household as a figure after, you know, destroying Japan and its society in order for this to be a figure for the new Japanese society that we were planning on building to rally around. The Truman administration fully agreed with this idea, so he granted immunity to the entire family. Thanks for nothing, fuckface. Not just immunity from prosecution, even from being called as a witness. They were untouchable. Now, you're probably wondering, though, if I'm on trial and I know like the end result of this is me swinging or getting a ventilation hole in my chest, fuck the imperial family. I'm going to rat them out, right? Mm-hmm. Wrong. Japanese defendants were coached by the U.S. government to not blame the emperor or the imperial family for anything. Fuck off with that. Now, due to their belief in the emperor as a major part of their Shinto religion and political ideology, the accused were kind of fine with this. This came down to, look, we know you're going to say that you're, especially when it came to like Tojo. Now, the idea wasn't the emperor was giving orders as much as it was the emperor was knew about everything and was fine with it. Right. That was how he was probably going to get it. But when it came to these higher ranking people, it came down to, look, we know you wanted to say that the emperor knew or was telling you to do this, but here's the deal. Leave him out of it, and he stays where he is. Like, we're not going to touch him. In the end of the day, you're going to hang regardless. Like, you know this is just, just right. falling water shit doesn't work. So why not keep him out of it? And they're like, okay. Now, instead, when the just falling orders excuse was tried out, and it was, blame fell on Hideki Tojo. He was the former prime minister amongst so many other positions. He was virtually a one-man government at one point. Now, and to be clear here, I could not think of a more deserving scapegoat in any situation because Hideki Tojo is a goddamn monster. Mm -hmm. Also, another reason why a lot of the pressure fell on him is because of American wartime propaganda. Like, American wartime propaganda really fucking just dug the knife in on Hojo as like the the main evildoer. Did I say Hojo? I said, I meant you, said Tojo. you said Hojo. <laughs> Fuck Tojo. Uh, like as far as Howard Johnsons, you know what you did. <laughs> as far as wartime propaganda goes, the American wartime propaganda was pretty vicious when it came to uh, Hideki Tojo. Um, not that he was not undeserving, but they made him like Germany had Hitler, Japan got Tojo. Right. All of their hate went towards them, and deservedly so. Fuck Tojo. Not to mention he was simultaneously the Prime Minister, the Minister of War, and the Chief of Staff. That's too many things. So outside of the Emperor telling him no, which is eventually how he lost his job, the Emperor, you know, quote-unquote, lost confidence in his ability to govern. And that's why he ended up resigning before the end of the war. But he, for, for all intents and purposes, he was the face of the Japanese war effort. And not even completely unfairly. Not to mention, like... When you're the emperor, you don't address your own people, let alone address an international audience. So, like, even if they wanted to make wartime propaganda focus on the emperor, it would have been really hard to do so. He never spoke in public. Right. Famously, when the, the instrument of surrender was recorded, it was by the emperor. And he spoke a much different kind of Japanese as normal people did, like almost like a noble dialect that normal people had never heard their emperor speak before things like that uh so the idea that it is a lot easier to just pin this on tojo mm-hmm. and you know tojo's sure served at the pleasure of the emperor technically uh, and it was the battle of saipan that finally got him shit can but he was it's fair to blame him for a lot right now propaganda teams went to overdrive to make the imperial family but mostly emperor hirihito look like hapless puppets who were kind of like the queen of england you know she's just the ceremonial sure. figure That's a baby. powerless to their own military and government sure. something we now know is a complete and total lie there was definitely tugs of war over power but hirohito was fine with most things sure. uh, he was very well informed on the goings-on of the war now while we actually have 
no idea if the emperor greenlighted what happened in Nanking. And I, there is no surviving evidence that implicates him. But at a minimum, he knew about it. That is inarguable. That, right. that is a proven fact. Now, Herbert Bix, who's a former professor at Hosei University in Japan, said it was inconceivable that the emperor did not know about Nanking. Oh, this, the Japanese media splashing it across the front page. Remember, the killing contests were in major media. Not to mention, his own fucking uncle was in charge of it. Even Hirohito's younger brother, Prince Mikasa Takahito, had served as a staff officer in Nanking after it had begun. He got transferred there. And he described it as, quote, a massacre. So everyone around him knew about it. It's, it re- requires such an incomprehensible leap of logic to think mm-hmm. the Emperor Hirohito had no idea. Right. And Prince Asaka was arrested. Like, he was so fucking guilty that American occupation authorities almost broke their own rules because of, like, what he did. They're like, guys, he definitely did Man King. Mm-hmm. They arrested him and interrogated him, but he was eventually re- released without charges because MacArthur said that there's no way they could charge a prince because that would lead to the emperor. That would open some doors that people wanted to fucking stay closed. Those people, namely, of course, being the U.S. government, occupation authorities, and the soon-to-be new government of Japan. Right. Because a, a lot of the guys in the new in the first waves of, of government uh, of Japan, both occupational and otherwise, were very strongly connected to some horrible shit that happened in World War II. Crazy how that happens. Yeah. I don't want to say something and be not be true, but it is very... I can't remember exact specifics, but it's quite a few of them. Now, the only punishment... If you want to call it that, and I don't call it that, is that Asaka was after the war, he became a commoner. Um, Now, this is because the American occupational rules abolished every line of imperial family other than the immediate one to the emperor. So that meant all of the various princes and third cousins and whatever, all gone like that. So this threw him out of his sweet palace and all of his government privilege. Now, he and his son, uh, who is also obviously tangentially nobility, were also banned from holding any public offices. Now, this actually wasn't because they were a former member of the imperial family, but because of their prior service in the imperial army. Mm. His house was seized by the government because it was a government-owned palace uh, and turned into the Tellen Art Museum, which is still open today. So you can oh, go good. and walk around Asaka's house, which is now an art museum. That's a mindfuck. I don't like yeah. that. It'd probably be better, I don't know, being raised to the ground so the yeah. evil spirits can be excised. Pro, pro raising to ground. Yeah. Now, Asaka spent the rest of his life doing what else but becoming a golf course architect. This I knew, actually. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, outside of becoming a major landlord in Tokyo or something, is the most like, yeah, of course. Of course it happened. Of course he got really into golfing. Now, he died peacefully in his home in 1981 at the age of 93. Now, he died peacefully, very well off. Um, He was very, very wealthy, despite the fact he wasn't nobility anymore. Of course, his family's going to give him some kickbacks here and there. He didn't didn't hurt for anything. He never wanted for a thing a day in his life. Now, for comparison's sake, let's look what happened to John Robb. John Robb, from the last episode, uh, of course, was saved more people than probably any other person in human history. Uh, he's accredited with 250,000 people being saved because of his actions. During the events in Nanking, Robb had been sending countless messages back to Nazi Germany, detailing what he was seeing happen in Nanking. We talked briefly about this when he yes. messaged Hitler. This, it turned out, was a very, very bad idea. Oh, no. Uh, if you remember, Japan and Germany, they're bros. And this makes their bro look real bad in a land where you, you don't really have freedom of speech or expression. Uh, so as soon as he got back to Germany, he was arrested by the Gestapo. He was warned to never talk about Nanking again. Just like, shut the fuck up about Nanking, or next time we visit, we won't be so nice. Mm-hmm. Now, this eventually led to him being destitute and penniless. He continued working during the war. However, obviously the war ends. He no longer has a job anymore. And he was never vocal about what he did in Nanking. Mm. However, to American occupational authorities, he was another Nazi. So 
he failed the denazification process, which we've talked about before on our on our clean Wehrmacht episode, which was horribly flawed uh, and mostly due to personal politics. He got tagged as a hardcore Nazi, which he was. I'm not going to deny that. He was a true believer of Nazism from every bit of evidence that we've ever seen. Sure. However, at this point, like mostly that tag to blacklist people from work was for high-ranking people. Uh, by the time he got back to Germany, he was nobody. He wasn't the head of the Nanking branch anymore. Uh, he was nothing. They banished him out to the fringes of the German Empire to work in Afghanistan during the war. Jesus. They no had thanks. a factory there. Um, Why? Yeah. Uh, I don't fucking know. So after the war, he's unable to get a job due to the fact that he's a member of the Nazi party, despite the fact that he went through all of the process right. of officially denouncing them like the, that the occupational authority laid out. He followed all of it. It wasn't good enough. This eventually forced his family to be virtually uh, homeless. That they, they were living in like a shack that they found. Right. Um, they were forced to eat grass and seeds they found in the wilderness. But by 1948, the people of Nanking heard about what happened to him and how he was living. So they began to send him massive amounts of food packages. Remember, these people are in the middle of a civil war. Yeah, things are not going great. And they're still sending him food and money. They saved his family. They conducted like multiple fundraisers, sending him thousands of dollars, which was like literally everything in the world to them. Uh, that was how he lived until he died. Uh, he died of a stroke in 1950. And I believe it was 1949, they were forced to stop because the nationalist government fell and the CCP took over and they didn't really like this arrangement. But he died in 1950 of a stroke. Now, for the question of how many people died in Nanking, because that's something I said we were going to talk about, and we will. According to history professor asked at the Tokyo trials, quote, the question is so big, I don't know where to begin. The total spread of the killing is so extensive, nobody can give a complete picture of it. Jesus and that is what? largely true to this day. Now, we do have a ballpark. The official count per the memorial hall, the victims of the Nanking massacre, which is in China today, uh, is at least 300,000 people. Another account done by Shun Jinwei in, in 1990 in a paper titled The Nanking Massacre and the Nanking Population put that number around 230,000. And even larger figures proposed by the Japanese Imperial Army by Major Hota Hisao, no relation to the other one, who submitted a 44-page confession while being held as a POW. He said outside of Nanking, the army undertook huge efforts to burn and dump into rivers or bury tons of dead bodies that he said were being brought out of the Nanking area, which he would know. He was a major. He would be in charge of administration. This means that these would not have been counted in either of those other two counts because they were not in Nanking when they were found. They were assumed to be from a different area. Most corpses of Nanking were left in the immediate area of the city, like literally in the street to rot. So these ones were not part of the total count. In 1937, this is per Oda, which he remembered, the unit dumped 19,000 bodies, which another unit nearby disposed of, and another unit disposed of 81,000. Still others dumped 50,000. If you put all those together, that bring the count up to 377,000 thousand victims within Nanking. Fuck. These are only the dead. For comparison, that is greater than the death toll of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. Now, ever since, the Japanese government has done seemingly everything it could to cover up this event, deny it entirely, or simply not talk about it. Something that continues largely unabated to this day. Previously in the first episode, I point out this is largely weird far-right groups, but that isn't entirely true. Not a single major Japanese political party does not contain a core grouping of people who deny the atrocities of Nanking, including the Liberal Democratic Party, which has run Japan almost entirely uncontested for decades, the party of Shinzo Abe, who himself is part of this. Though over the years, various different prime ministers have apologized for Japan's actions, most of these apologies have gone unaccepted for, for various reasons, normally quirks of speech, weird facilitating that they've done on certain parts of it. And quite honestly, that is not up for me to decide if these apologies are good enough or not. And that's not any of ours. Right. That's up to the people of China. Right. 
Emperor Akihito apologized as well, a fact generally ignored or explained away by people who still insist in denying it, while being a hardcore return to tradition monarchist in Japan, which certainly exists. Other officials and prime ministers have apologized since, and unfortunately, others have still attempted to downplay what has happened. Japan, a land of contrast, I suppose. Now, while denial isn't always in the mix, justification is. With one minister of education calling the events of Nanking, quote, just a part of war. No. Though I should point out that like most genocide denial or other atrocity denial, this is not done by actual historians, at least not most of the time. Instead, it's done by politicians and lay people who happen to be just the loudest motherfuckers in the room. Unfortunately, a combination of government censorship, propaganda, and God knows what else has led to a general population of Japan to see things in a very fucked up way in regards to the wartime past. For starters, there's a Yasukuni shrine, which honors the various executed Class A war criminals, Matsui included. Over the years, several different prime ministers have visited the shrine, causing all kinds of problems with countries that were victimized by Japan during World War II, namely Korea and China. As you can imagine, this is uh, unpopular in these places. Now, if you're wondering what is the general vibe, like what does Japan think about, what do Japanese people think about this? I don't know. Uh, There was a poll done in 2013, though, that showed the largest percentage of about 50% among Japanese people polled that there's no problem about Japanese prime ministers visiting the Yasukuni shrine, which is, for people unaware, it's a Shinto shrine. I don't know enough about the religion to go into it, but it's a shrine. They go to it. They show their respects. Sure. Now, this included those who see no problem if the visit is made by a private citizen, and more than 70% of the Japanese polls sounded tolerant towards such a visit by a member of government. Most of the attempts made to deny or distort the events of Nanking happened in the 1970s. By the 1980s, the Japanese veterans group known as Kaikosha, shocker, they were a very right-wing group, attempted to add their voices to this swelling of Japanese nationalism, which, of course, means denying war crimes and atrocities that occurred in Nanking. So their goal was to interview their members who had served in Nanking and be like, see, they said nothing happened. Don't do that. Funny story. That isn't what happened. Kaiosha was fucking horrified when they found out all of their veterans they interviewed openly admitted to doing awful things without much prompting. Who was the Indonesian dictator in the seventh? Sirhato? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a documentary about his soldiers' tale. It's called The Act of Killing, right? There we go. It's incredible. Very, very good. One of the most unsettling things I've ever seen in my life. Also, uh, not to change the atmosphere of the recording, but I may also have COVID. Outstanding. (laughs) I gave it to you via the internet. No, uh, my girlfriend's mom has it. So now we might all have COVID. So that's tight. Uh, Yeah, let's let's keep talking about uh, man's inhumanity towards man. Thankfully, we are almost done and we can stop giving COVID to each other over the internet. Now, like I said, Kyosha was fucking shocked that it turns out that their veterans were like, no, bro, we totally did that. Uh, This caused the veterans group to back down and apologize publicly, saying, quote, whatever the severity of war or special circumstances of war psychology, we just lose words face to this kind of illegal mass killing. As those who are related to the pre-war military, we simply apologize deeply to the people of China as truly a regrettable act of barbarity. Oh, that's not what I was expecting to hear. No, that's like the ultimate fucking U-turn. Now, historians have tried to figure out why this is the case, why this keeps happening. And they've posited that the decision by MacArthur to grant immunity and to cover up for the imperial family later impeded the Japanese people's own historical awareness and willingness to accept such crimes took place. Uh, Again, Herbert Bick said, quote, Many would find it difficult to believe they have been accomplices in aggression and murder at a near genocidal scale when the emperor never had to bear any responsibilities for his own speech or actions. MacArthur helped prepare the ground for future Japanese conservative interpretations of post-war monarchy that denied the emperor ever held real power. This has denied any kinds of transitional justice to ever occur. And that, unfortunately, is the rape of Nanking. Liam, thankfully, I'm going to do something to light the mood here on our way out. Because we do a thing here on the show called Questions from the Legion. Cue that theme song I do not yet have. I keep telling myself I'll get one for that. I don't have one. 
If you would like to ask us a question, Legion, donate to the show. There's a large thread going on our Patreon. Add your question to it. I will get to them all, like I said, at some point. On a long enough timeline, all of these things are possible, right? Today's question is, if you can make one thing that's legal right now into a misdemeanor in the whole of the United States, what do you pick? Oh, boy. I'm going to go with talking on speakerphone in public. <laughs> talking in the elevator. We have similar ones. Just in general, talking to anybody talking. in the elevator. Really? Just talking. Just Fuck, talking. we're unemployed now. Actually, I would make littering punishable by death. <laughs> uh, I, I, I love petty despot, Liam. I would not be kind. I don't know how to explain this without being able to show you what it's like, but I was in the underground in the metro when I was in Yerevan, and there was someone trying to desperately talk on the speakerphone, and I've actually never been on an underground subway in the United States, so I have no idea how quiet they are normally. Not. Okay, so... Yerevan's was built in the 80s, still largely uses trains from the 80s. It's loud as shit. I can't hear someone talking right next to me. Right. And there's this guy just like, what? I can't hear you. <laughs> like on speakerphone. I was impressed as he kept the signal. Smoking on the subway in Philadelphia. You can smoke on the subway? Yeah, people do. On the L and on the subway. Ugh. For those of you, uh, any subway, if you smoke on it, I should have the right as a human being to throw you off the train, hopefully into the path of an oncoming train. Nate, you might have to delete that. <laughs> That's disgusting. That's got to be illegal, though, and people just do it anyway. Yeah, those people should be hanged. <sighs> Fucking Christ. I'm hungry, man, you know? So, Liam, again, thank you for joining me in the series. Everybody. Fuck yourself, Joe. <laughs> oh, thanks, buddy. Yeah, buddy. Uh, everybody, also, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I hope you learned something. I, I hope I didn't just like victimize 50,000 people or however many people want to listen to this. Um, but if you like what we do here on the show, I promise not. If you found us during the series, I promise not everything we do is just fucking awful and grim. He's lying. It's various shades of awful and grim, to be honest with you. But if you like what we do here and you'd like to support it, please support us on Patreon. You make everything we do possible. Um, and. I have no cutesy way to end this. Until next time, don't, don't do genocide. Your, don't do a genocide. We, we shouldn't have to say that. I know. Oh, well, <laughs> this is how we make money, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, don't do anything I just talked about for the last three hours. Yeah, please. <laughs>